hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Dave, and this is a Trans Bible Podcast. It's been a hot minute since we recorded, so uh, I think we're kicking off. I think this is season five now, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Phil Batterson. Phil is a coach and an integrative physiologist and the head of physiology at Moxie. Phil, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Dave, for having me on. This is uh this, this is fun. We we met right because of of full gas, and before even the first meeting, we started talking, and we were like, we need to get each other on our podcast. So Dave will be coming hopefully on on the Critical Oxygen podcast at some time as well. Absolutely, yeah, and and so that's a great kind of segue. You're also a host of a podcast, Critical Oxygen, in which you talk about. Um, I'm sure we'll get into Moxie a little bit here, but basically. Um, uh, infrared technology that kind of measures muscle or oxygen saturation at the muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, expand a little bit more. Tell us about yourself and kind of what you yeah. do. Yeah, definitely. So, so uh, the critical oxygen or just critical oxygen is, in general is kind of my my physiology coaching business, and um, I, I felt a need within the endurance community to help bridge the gap between the the research that's out there and then actual coaching practices. I, I felt like the researchers were saying one thing, coaches were saying another. So the whole uh, tagline or mission statement for critical oxygen is helping athletes and coaches optimize their physiology to maximize their endurance potential. So with that, we use, you know, the physiological principles, you know, that, that are taught to you in like, you know, your general exercise physiology classes, as well as the research that's out there and then new technology or just technology in general that has, uh, you know, started to, to come up and be available to the masses. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my whole shtick. Um, I got my master's degree. Oh, well, so I, I guess I can start, start back a little bit further than that. Um, I promise this won't be too long, but, um, <laughs> I, I started my journey in junior high. I, I, I wrestled for a, like a winter and then coming off of that winter season, I think it was like eighth grade, went and uh, did track and field and like absolutely crushed it. Like, I, I don't think my, my high school or my junior high wasn't anything special, but I like set the mile record and the two mile record. Oh, nice. And that was the first indication that I had any sort of talent in, in any others, in any sport, you know, I, I wish I had had talent in like, you know, baseball, basketball, football, those sort of things. Cause that was like what I was brought up on. But this first indication that I had, uh, you know, some level of talent and endurance kind of sparked the fire to try to get better at it. Yeah. Then throughout high school, I ran cross country and track dabbled in wrestling a little bit. I was, uh, I was six foot tall and a hundred and you know, 35 pounds. So I wasn't much of a wrestler. I was, I was just a string bean out there. Um, and, but it was something that like wrestling really taught me a lot about conditioning and getting into shape and other things like that, where during cross country and track, you know, a lot of the times, like I I had coaches who were like, Oh, I, I would ask them, why are we doing this sort of workout? And they just would say, because I said so that never resonated well with me. I, I, I like to think I'm kind of a smart guy. So I always want the why behind things. Right. Like, why are we doing this? Why, why are we doing 20 by four hundreds, you know, two days before the, the regional <laughs> race or something like that? Of course, I'm going to ask, like, this seems a little, a little ridiculous. Um, so, so that, that passion, you know, has always kind of been there. And then going into uh, undergrad, I went to the university of Michigan and I wasn't good enough to be on their cross country team. So I was on the rowing team. 
And that was kind of my first foray into a coach who actually did, uh, you know, really focused on taking your performance. So something like FTP or something along those lines, and then breaking your training into easier days, medium or moderate days, and then hard days. Right. And it was amazing what, what he was able to do. He, we had 75 or a hundred people like guys on the team and we were a club team and we would, we would very regularly beat other varsity teams just because of the way that the coach was able to implement training and, and pretty much just, you'll know, get the best out of every guy that was on that team. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Did my, my first degree in, in mechanical engineering, which is, you know, not endurance or exercise yeah. physiology. Um, but the, the love of optimization of machines and optimization of, of different systems has always been there. And that's, that's where I think in, uh, this engineering still plays a role in my life. Um, so then I went down, got my first job corporate, absolutely hated it. You know, felt like, you know, it felt like I was just working until I was, you know, ready to retire and then die. Um, so really kind of had a, a, come to, I don't want to say come to Jesus moment. Cause I'm not super religious, but a, a, you know, kind of like come to the light moment where it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to spend the next 40 to 50 years of my life doing something that gets me paid, but gives me no joy. So I, I started to think about what gives me joy and what, what do I want to actually do with my life? So I, I pivoted to cross country coaching and I was able to join like uh, coach a cross country team in high school. I was just the assistant coach, but the team was really successful. Um, they were the first team out of Georgia to qualify for the Nike national meet, Oh, nice! um, which was really, really sweet. So I was able to see that coach in that environment again, and, you know, picking up all of these things, like I pick up patterns. I'm like, Oh, you know, this coach is actually individualizing this training, even though he has 40 people on the team and he has kind of, you know, a a set of rules that he follows in order to get everybody to an optimal place. Um, then with that, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back. I want to be a coach, uh, I, I, but I need to probably do some biology classes because I'd never taken a biology course before. Um, so I went to a junior college and was like taking exercise physiology or just physiology in general, anatomy, general biology classes, those sort of things, getting ready to you know apply for a master's degree. And during that time, I reached out to the, the coach at the junior college and he was like, well, I was like, hey, do you need an assistant coach? more than happy just to volunteer and do it. Um, and by the way, here are my, here are my 5k times right now. You know, I don't know why I said, why I put those. I think it was just to show that like, I, you know, I was still in shape Yeah. and he came back and he was like, Oh, do you want to like, you can definitely be my assistant coach, but, or, or, uh, but do you want to be on the team and I can give you a full ride scholarship? Oh shit. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, yeah, dude, yeah. Sign me up. Like, what do I do? So, so, so that like assistant coaching position really turned into me being more of like a graduate assistant for him because at the time I was 24 and the people on the junior college team are like 17, 18 and 19. So, so I was essentially the babysitter for the kids on the team. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, that was a really fun experience again, because, uh, the, this coach was able to recruit, a national caliber women's team that actually won the national championship meet that year. And I was essentially the assistant coach. So I've been like the assistant coach for a number of pretty successful, you know, 
teams at this point. And I'm like, oh, this is sweet. Every time I go and you know coach somewhere, like it, it seems to work out. Yeah. Um, obviously, the head coaches are the ones that are doing the job. I can't take credit for that. But at the same time, it was still like, oh, my my compass is probably pointing in the right direction. Right. So then I got hooked up with um my who the a guy who turned out to be my master's advisor, uh, Dr. Robbie Jacobs. Um, while I was participating in a research study on the effects of different drugs on high altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. So basically what they did is they recruited a bunch of, you know, college age, uh, people who could pass the military, like the army fitness test. And then two weeks leading up to going to altitude, cause we were at sea level in Michigan. Um, they gave us, you know, uh, some, some drug that they thought was going to be able to decrease the prevalence of high altitude sickness. And during one of the things we did, we did like a, like a four mile ruck hike started at 10,000 feet and got up to 12,000 feet. And one of the researchers at the top just so happened to turn into my uh, department chair. And I, I rode, rode down the mountain in the back of the truck with him. And I was just talking about how, what I'm interested in and all this other stuff. And he was like, Oh, I got somebody who I think, you know, you would, you would vibe with really well. So I got hooked up with my master's advisor he offered me a position, you know, like a, a research position. And then the school gave me a teaching position. So I went out to Colorado, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, which is just south of you. And um, was out there for two years during my master's degree. And that's where I started to really get into like the applied physiology, like applied physiology testing. We'd bring people in, we do, um, you know, a, a maximal exercise test to exhaustion to get their VO2 max or maximal oxygen consumption. We could determine their zones and we could determine their efficiencies and, and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And my, my whole master's thesis was on traditional predictors of endurance performance. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, there's, there's a lot of researchers who have published a lot of papers that basically say the combination of an athlete's economy or efficiency, where their second threshold is occurring, and then their VO2 max is uh, together really, really capable of predicting someone's ability to do endurance performance. And, and um, so when you say second threshold, that would be akin to like what we call FTP or critical power. Yep. FTP, critical power, maximal lactate, steady state, ventilatory threshold to nearest break point to <laughs> uh, lactate at four millimole, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of different, uh, uh, you know, terminology for it, but yes, FDP would be, you know, the most functional it's in the name, the, the most, you know, kind of like, like functional, uh, threshold, second threshold. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that combination. And then our wrinkle was that we use near infrared spectroscopy. Um, we were using two different devices, the Moxie, which was, uh, a, a affordable consumer grade device, and then a quote unquote, lab grade gold standard device. I, I, I put it in quotes yeah, because quotes, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like, it was just a really, really expensive piece of equipment that shined light into your, into your muscle, um, and gave us the same results as the Moxie essentially. But what we found is that using, uh, nears, we were actually able to, um, determine your muscles ability to uptake and utilize oxygen. And that was the single best predictor of endurance performance. So better than the combination of view to max FTP and economy really alone, muscle oxygen capacity. So your ability to basically get 
oxygen to the capillaries, have those capillaries diffuse that oxygen to the mitochondria and have the mitochondria use that oxygen. Single best predictor of endurance performance. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, that's You're something like, I, I, I can see your to. mind kind of getting blown. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I definitely want to come back to that because that's, um, yeah. that's not what we set out to discuss today, but we're definitely going to come back to that. Yes. Yeah, we, we certainly can. Um, so, so yeah, so, so during that, I, and especially that last portion where we were kind of discovering that, oh, maybe it, maybe there's something to do. We, I call it the, the, the capillary myoglobin mitochondrial axis or the oxidative axis. And it, that subunit seems to be the most important for endurance performance. So that really kind of got me interested in more of like the molecular side of exercise physiology. So with that, I was like, Ooh, this would be really cool if I could go study this, you know, as a, you know, for a PhD. So my advisor had some connections with who the guys who ended up, ended up being my PhD advisors over at Oregon State University. And they had an opening, they had two openings for PhD students. So I went, joined their lab and didn't further that area of research. I kind of stopped being in the applied endurance performance realm and was more in the, um, how do our skeletal muscle mitochondria adapt to things like exercise and dietary interventions in the context of sedentary behavior, um, high fat diet overfeeding in mice and other things like that. So more the disease side of things. Okay. And if you've ever worked with either mice or people who don't want to exercise, <laughs> it's really, really tough to get them, get people to exercise or, or mice to even exercise if they don't want to do it. So during that time, I kind of learned and started to appreciate more and more uh, the, the athlete side of things, the endurance development side of things. So I was like, okay, well do my PhD in this. And then pretty much as soon as I'm done with that, I want to pivot back out to, you know, where the compass was pointing initially, which is like the coaching side of things, the education side of things and, and all of that. And that's where I'm at now. So I told, I told everybody this wasn't going to take a long time and then it did, but, um, did. that's, that's my background and that's why I'm kind of fueled towards, you know, getting on, po you know, podcasts like this, talking to you about this, talking to, you know, just like the best coaches in the world, how they use the research and, and talking to the researchers as well and trying to get both sides to communicate a little bit better, because that is what I think is going to lead us to, you know, even furthering our athletes, uh, athletic potential. Yeah. And I, like, I certainly appreciate that. And like you and I talked about offline, I think one of the first times we talked, one of the reasons I coach and have a podcast is because there's so much bullshit out there. There's so much noise <laughs> every day. Yeah. There's, you know, some new product somebody's trying to push on you or some new supplement or something like that. And so I feel like mm -hmm. my job as a coach is to help act as a filter, simplify things and tell people like what actually works. And, and you mentioned it several times before we started recording. It's like, in, in my experience, I, I just realized that I've been coaching 13 years now. In my experience, consistency is like the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And so like, before we start looking at all these other things, it's like, are you consistent? Like, how often are you working out? How frequently? How consistently? Yep. Um, yeah. And, and then you said uh, specificity and progression are kind of the next two there. And yeah. so, so I appreciate that you do that because it's like, for me, a lot of times it's like, 
it's hard to read papers or like to read all the papers. And so I appreciate people like you and Oscar, you can droop and Alex Hutchinson who can take the science and make it easier for us to understand and, and, and really like apply it in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I asked you to come on is because I go down this rabbit hole every winter where I start like doing research into like better ways to test or more accurate ways to determine whether we're calling it FTP or critical power or maximal lactate steady state. And I always like just kind of like go in circles and always come up with the same kind of conclusions every winter. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think it's cool to have you on and, and really discuss like what do these things mean? Why does it matter? Mm -hmm. And what are some of the, I don't know if pitfalls the right words, but like what are some of the, flaws in some of these tests that we do. And I think the most popular test is people like to do a 20 minute maximal power test, multiply it times 95% and that becomes their FTP. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start just by like, we all talk about zones. Sometimes there's like a five zone model. Sometimes there's a seven zone model, three zone model. So when we talk about zones, when we're actually talking about the body and what's actually, actually measurable, what we can see how many actual zones are there? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this question because, and we'll get into, we'll get into, you know, why, you know, like the say five zone model, seven zone model and stuff exists, but any research paper or potentially like, I, I would say the majority of research papers that you read, um, if they're looking at training intensity distributions or zoning, there's really only three zones, um, that, that exists. And I, I would, I would say that maybe there's a, there's a fourth one. Um, so stay tuned. Um, <laughs> but no, so, so what we're trying to do is we're trying like by determining zones, we're trying to delineate between different physiological states in the body. Um, you know, so for example, if you have a three zone model, right, you have, your kind of your, your low to moderate intensity exercise, you have your, your middle of the road intensity exercise more akin to like, you know, like sweet spot or threshold training. And then you have your high intensity exercise, the, the break points or the transition points that actually tell us where different zones are occurring are your first threshold. So that first threshold is going to be uh, and I, I laugh because there's, you know, 20 different definitions again, but it's, you know, if you go in ventilatory threshold one, people have tried to identify it with heart rate variability. Um, people have used NIRS like Moxie monitor to determine the first transition or the first break point in near infrared spectroscopy, uh, the first break point or the first rise in blood lactate above baseline or two millimole of lactate or, uh, you know, the, the first one millimolar rise in lactate. So there's, there's tons and tons of definitions, but the first threshold is that first shift essentially from, um, where your cells can, can maintain homeostasis really, really well to where, Oh, our cells may not, you know, maybe shifting away from, Oh, fat max is also another, uh, <laughs> an, another, uh, threshold, you know, first threshold. Yeah. So, Essentially, what we're trying to do, though, is we're trying to detect the point where our either um, our bodies are recruiting, um, you know, more ty- or more type two fibers compared to type one fibers, or where we're shifting from uh, oxidizing o- the majority of fat 
to more carbohydrates. So, so that's the first threshold. And it's, it's pretty challenging to actually measure just because the, the, the changes or the differences that we're actually looking at are very, very small. So those shifts are, are, are pretty challenging to actually measure. So first threshold is essentially, if we're just thinking about it, you know, that, that transition from all day riding pace to something that is going to, to maybe not be an all day thing anymore. So with that, like, I've heard some people and I kind of use it too, is like using breathing as an indication there too. And mm-hmm. so like using, like tell, talking to an athlete and telling them like conversational pace, like once mm-hmm. you're getting to a point where conversation is becoming difficult, you're probably past that threshold. Do you mm-hmm. think that's fairly accurate or like? I think it, I think it gets us and you know, in, in a lot of this, a lot of my, a lot of my answers to these questions are probably going to be like, well, it depends, or, yeah, totally. uh, you know, does it get us 90 to 95% of the way there? And I think using the talk test gets us 90 to 95% of the way there. I think there's with any rule, there's exceptions to it, you know, cause there's probably people who can talk until, you know, they're, <laughs> they're at VO two max. And there's other people who, you know, because their breathing mechanics are different in, uh, you know, maybe not as coordinated are going to have a lot tougher time, you know, using that as like a true accurate gauge, but it's better than nothing. If you're just going out and you're kind of just being like, Oh, I'm going to go run or ride at something that, you know, feel, or, you know, at something that, you know, feels generally easy to me. Um, I, I think using some sort of gauge talk test, even rating of perceived exertion, you know, can be good. And I, I, I think I've seen people use like, like, two and a half to three and a half as like that RPE. So it's like, it's pretty low. So, so let me ask you that. And like, I, I warned you that we're not going to get through all our bullet points. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fine. Um, so that's something that's really interesting to me. And I think I was talking to an athlete about this yesterday. It's like, I think there's always this mentality that if a little of something is good, then more is better. Right. And, uh-huh. and so like when we're riding, like if we want to call it zone two pace or endurance pace, like if it feels easy, it can't be right. Right. So it's like, everybody wants to like ride right at the top of it. And it's like, right. My kind of advice a lot of times is like, it should feel too the first two to three hours. It should feel pretty easy, but the last mm-hmm. two to three hours, it's going to start to that same wattage or effort's going to take a little bit more effort. Right. And so mm-hmm when we're talking about this huge range, so like if we're talking about the seven zone model, it's, they're talking about like from 56% to 75% FTP would be like your zone two. So the great big range, right? Is there any benefit? Like, are you getting any more benefit being right at the top than being in the middle or a little bit lower than that? I think you're getting marginal benefits. And it's something I struggle with all the time. So, so, you know, for, for those athletes that are out there, I totally feel you. If, if something feels too easy, I think, you know, from a psychological perspective, especially someone who's, you know, who's trying to get a coach and, you know, really kind of on, on like that, I'm going to train optimally in order to, you know, get the most adaptations. I think we as type A individuals have a tendency to push things. We're like, okay, well, Exactly. Like you said, if a little bit is good, then, oh, riding at right at that top of that zone is probably the best. And I mean, you hear it on, on popular podcasts and other things like that, where it's like, oh, well, if you're not at that, you know, actual, I'm going to put quotes again, threshold, because it's, it's not, it's a transition area. It's not a point. Oh, I like um, that. 
Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a threshold area or a transition area, not a point because um, I mean, you know, error and measurement and other things like that, but you know, whether you're getting exactly at, at that, you know, point that we think of it, it being, or you're again, are you 95% of the way there? Most likely you're how much you have to think about how much above resting are you compared to like, you know, in proximity to that first, you know, uh, transition area. I tell people this all the time, especially in running is like, if you're just, if you're just sit, if I'm sitting here in my, in my, at my desk, you know, maybe like 55 to 70 beats per minute is my heart rate. But if I'm walking, if I'm walking actually uphill and doing, you know, walking kind of fast, I can get my heart rate up to like 110, 115. So you can't tell me that that's, that is a stress on your body. So in your, in what your body is trying to do is it tries to adapt to stresses that are being placed on it by becoming more resilient to changes in stress. So if, if you're doing for an extended period of time, something that is slightly lower, you know, say, say for example, say, say your zone two is, is 180 Watts and you're doing 150 Watts. You're, you're pretty much all the way there. And most likely one of the, one of the main benefits of zone two training is to accumulate more volume. So most likely with that 150 compared to that 180, you're probably uh, accumulating less fatigue and are able to actually do more volume. So it's that consistency, specificity, and progression again, right? right? If 150 is going to allow you to stay consistent and progress, then yeah, that that is the optimal you know one for you to do, not the 180. And again, I fall into this trap all the time. Uh, I I had a really good test, uh, you know, four or five weeks ago where it said, oh, your zone two is at 180 180 watts. So I have not done other than like on recovery rides and then 30 minutes today, I haven't done anything under 180, right, <laughs> which right. I, I'm over here. I'm talking about how you need to go easier and stuff like that. But then I'm just ignoring it. Cause I'm like, Oh, well I need to push that threshold up a little bit. But the point is, is that with, I'm able to actually recover from all of this, still hit my hard days hard. And, and I have a limited amount of time. So you know, I, it's, it, there's a number of different factors that go into it, but yeah, I would say it's about the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I think and now this is going to turn into the zone two podcast, but <laughs> I, I, I like, I think that's, that's a valid point. And that's something, like I said, when I was talking to this athlete, it's like, I think a lot of times as athletes, we get tunnel vision and we think each day happens in a vacuum. And it's like, it's not like, we need to consider what happened the last three days and what's going to happen the next three days. And so like, mm-hmm today's setting up the next three days. And if I go too hard today on my zone two day or my endurance day, then when it's my BO two day, three days from now, and if I can't hit the numbers and I'm not getting the stimulus that we want for adaptation, and, and even though it feels just as hard, we're not getting where we need to be. And so it just, I don't know. I, I call it the boner zone where it's like, if, if it feels hard, it feels good. but <laughs> It's like, it's not really achieving a whole lot. I love that. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Don't be in the boner zone guys. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, I think that's really the gauge, right? Is if, if you have targets for say VO two max or high intensity work that you're doing and you're not able to hit those targets, there's a high likelihood that you're accumulating too much fatigue or not recovering enough from the work that you're doing leading up to that. So for me personally, that's exactly how I gauge it 
is I say, okay, well, and what what's really crazy, and I know you're a you're a cycling coach, but I have found that since I have transitioned to cycling more seriously, I'm able to recover so much better compared to running. And again, that allows me to kind of push into that like low zone two gray zone, you know, training while still being able to recover and then hit really, really good VO two max workouts for at least for, for, for me. Um, so, so it's one of those things like use that as a gauge is, are you able like with the, with the training that you're currently doing, when you ask yourself to go and hit high intensity work, are you able to actually hit that? Or are you, you know, tapping out, you know, a couple, uh, a couple intervals early, like a set early, other things like that. Cause if that's the case, then you definitely have to reduce, uh, the, the, the wattage that you're going at, you know, during your, your zone two. And so this is a good kind of segue into our next zone. Mm -hmm. So we left zone one, we went through this transition area and now we're, we've entered zone two. And so what's starting to happen yeah. What changes are taking place once we're creeping into like, what is this? The heavy domain now? Is that the, yeah. I just, it's, what is it? Moderate, heavy, and severe. That's another thing is there's so much vernacular. So I apologize <laughs> to people like whoever the researchers were that came up with everything. They just make it more and more confusing. It's like oh, totally. when I read legal documents and I don't understand a word, I get mad because I'm <laughs> like, Oh, these guys are purposely pulling the wool over my eyes. And I, I, again, gives me a job, right? Cause I can actually then, you know, try to translate it to people. Yeah. Um, but okay. So, so yeah. So if we think of zone one as, you know, kind of like that, that exercise intensity that you could probably do for forever, you know, like if you're doing ultra ultra marathons, really long bike races, like you were talking about, you should be able to do that for really, really extended periods of time, as long as you're eating adequately. When you trans, when you when you pass that transition area into the heavy domain or the, I guess it's like more, it's like it's like threshold, right? You know, it's it's gray zone, it's threshold, it's it's something along those lines. And you're giving me a perplexed look. And here's my definition. But, but this would be zone three, right? Like this would be ten, in a five or a seven zone model. Now we're talking about like. Oh, okay. So okay, yeah. So we have to. Three. So the, I'm talking a three zone model, right? Right. So yeah. yeah. So zone one is yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is why it's so confusing. So let's do it. Let's do a five zone model just because, okay, that's a little bit, I think, you know, people use it a little bit more. So yeah. within five zones, right. Your, your zone two training is, is that first transition point. Um, and then within, so zone three then is like, I don't even know what people call it, but it's like, could be called your gray zone, your sweet spot zone, borderline threshold, you know, sort of area. And, what's happening is your body is starting to recruit more type two fibers. Type two fibers are those fibers that actually start to use more carbohydrates. And this is where the carbohydrates are like that kind of high octane fuel. So your body is transitioning towards more carbohydrates. And along with that, you're, as you get closer and closer to that second transition point, your body is breaking down more and more carbohydrates. When you break down carbohydrates, they can they come in the form of this molecule called pyruvate. Pyruvate can either be taken up into your mitochondria where they can be broken down and then paired with uh, the the creation of water with oxygen. So that's where we use oxygen is within the mitochondria. And if we don't have enough mitochondria to take up the pyruvate that's being created, then what we see is we see that pyruvate start to get 
formed into lactate. Right. That lactate has to go somewhere. It's not getting uptaken by the mitochondria within that muscle cell. So it gets shipped out of that muscle cell and, you know, could potentially make it to another muscle cell. Or if we're above or, you know, through that second transition zone, then we start to see lactate accumulate in the blood. And this is where you, your second threshold or your FTP critical power, uh, ventilatory threshold to nears break point to um, your lactate at four millimole, your, uh, you know, second rise in, in lactate or onset of blood lactate accumulation, whatever you want to call it is actually occurring. So it's that transition point between what is metabolically sustainable. So what your mitochondria can, can maximally uptake and, and, you know, to uh, kind of a runaway freight train of right. lactate being accumulated in the blood. Um, lact- the accumulation of lactate in the blood is just a surrogate marker of the body being like, oh shit, I'm unraveling. Um, but you're, you'll see your heart rate is starting to increase. Your, mac- your oxygen uptake is actually starting to continually increase past that second threshold. Um, you'll, you'll have issues reestablishing uh, oxygen homeostasis within the muscle. So if you're looking at NEARS, your, your SMO2 will actually continue to drop if you're past that second threshold. Um, so it's the point of, uh, you know, no longer being able to have your body reestablish homeostasis or a steady state. And, and, and tell me if this is like oversimplifying it, but like, so below the first threshold or below, below the first transition area, mm-hmm. things are stable. So if we were to measure lactate, it would stay pretty much the same. If you're looking at muscle oxygen, it would stay, it'd be high at once you're warmed yeah. up and it would if stay I, pretty much actually, the same. Yeah, yeah, it would, it would go up once you're war- or as you warm up and then it would stay very high. Yeah. Then we transition, we, we pass that first area. Mm-hmm. And so if we were looking at lactate, we would see it rise, but it would still stabilize at some point. Like we'd yep. see it like rise above baseline, but it would stabilize. If you're looking at muscle oxygen, it would start to decrease, but it would also stabilize at some mm-hmm. point, telling us that something's happening, something's being produced, mm-hmm. but we're able to handle it. Like we're re- maintaining homeostasis. And then yep. once we cross this second threshold, shit goes haywire. We, we like, yep. we just can't like exchange it as quickly as it's being produced. And eventually yep. it's going to build up and we're going to blow up. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. So that, that was actually, that's a, that's a, perfect summary where you know kind of like that so zone one and zone two in a five zone model are kind of steady like your body is able to stay steady then you reach a stabilization phase where you can reestablish a a steady you know higher base higher than baseline so you can re re restabilize you know, where, whether that's lactate, whether that's uh, muscle oxygen um, consumption, but you find that you can reach a steady state. Then once you transition, you know, past that second tran- or second threshold, um, then that's the non-steady area. And that's where, you know, like stuff like, you know, metabolites are starting to accumulate. Um, your body is signaling, we need to work harder and harder and harder. That's why your heart rate continues to go up. You need to try to get as much oxygen still to your, you know, working muscle. Um, and it's just, everything is, is kind of unraveling. So if you keep trying to increase that power, eventually you're going to reach fatigue. That's, that's exactly like the whole idea of a maximal oxygen test, right? Is we, we start really low 
and we increase, you know, a certain amount of power every few minutes. And then eventually, you know, it's like, it's like running up a hill that gets steeper and steeper and steeper. Yeah. Eventually you're not going to be able to go up that hill anymore just because your body is incapable of actually creating enough force to say, keep those pedals moving or uh, keep you running up that hill. And, and so would this be reflected in heart rate too? Like, I, yeah. like, so if you're below the first threshold, you, you know, heart rate's steady, you, you cross over the first one and it kind of like rises, but then plateaus and then you cross over the second and it just it, keeps going until you hit VO2 max, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, yes and no, because heart rate is actually really, um, really sensitive to everything else that's happening in the body too. So if your body is actually continuing to warm up, say, look, so, so for that first, you know, that, that first zone that we're talking about, I would say, yes, most likely you should, your heart rate should be able to stay steady. But that second, you still see a little bit. We, the researchers call it cardiac drift. Right. So there's some level of, of cardiac drift that is occurring, and that could be due to, uh, you know, depletion of muscle glycogen, increases in, uh, you know, core body temperature. That's going to push more blood to the skin, and other things like that. Um, and then, so so there there might be some cardiac drift, but then the, but then once you hit that second threshold, then it's like, yep, it's going to eventually keep increasing. I don't know how long it's going to take. Cause that's a function of how hard you're working, the temperature, how quickly you're depleting glycogen, other things like that. But eventually that's going to trend towards your maximal heart rate. And at the same time, your VO two max is going to continue to go up other things like that. Okay. So, so I guess one to like, one thing I want to mention just because we were talking about um, endurance work or zone two work. And like one of the big things is just like being able to recover quickly enough that you can maintain a high volume. And I think the reason I brought up like zone two in the three zone model or zone three or sweet spot in a five zone model mm-hmm. is that something I've seen is that a lot of athletes, maybe they don't have a lot of time. And so everybody kind of shifts to this like sweet spot methodology. But what I've seen is it like, it just creates a lot of fatigue. And so I think it might be great for newer athletes where really any stimulus is going to be enough to move the needle, but like Mm -hmm. eventually it just like creates a lot of fatigue so that you can't like do the hard work that you need to. And it like, that's just like when I've tried it myself and when I've taken on athletes who have like followed something like that, that's what I see. And so like, I start working with them and at first they're like, the work's not hard enough. Right. But then eventually like after a month or two, they're like, wow, like I, like I feel way better. I have a lot more energy. And now all of a sudden they're like hitting new peak powers because Mm -hmm. they can when it's time to. Um, so just to hammer that at home one more time, like the the biggest thing is consistency and being able to go hard when Mm -hmm. it matters. Yeah. And there, that's not to say that there's not a, a a time and a place for that, uh, you know, gray zone, that sweet spot training, you know, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, for example, so this is one of the reasons why I kind of just call it like threshold, like that zone two threshold, because if you, if you're thinking about, you know, second, second threshold as like your critical power, your functional threshold power or something like that, what is going to happen if you do an FTP test that is two hours long. So for example, you want to, if, if, if your goal is to do a two hour race, then you better know pretty damn well what your two hour functional threshold power is, right? 
Like that's what's going, that's what's going to be your quote unquote second threshold. In my opinion, if you're, if you're, if your race is an hour, then you're going to want to know what your one hour FTP is. If your race is 30 minutes, you're going to want to know what your 30 minute FTP is. If your race is six hours, you're going to want to know what your six hour FTP is. So what, what I, I, I think, you know, that, that second threshold is should shift based off of whatever it is you're trying to train for, right? Because sustain, because we're, we're trying to figure out what the, you know, sustainable to non-sustainable power is like, that's what second threshold is really trying to give us, but that's going to shift based on how long your race actually is. Right. Does that, does that kind of make sense? It, in my understanding of this and correct me if I'm wrong, but like part of what's happening once we're getting, I mean, it, it's athlete dependent for sure, but it's like, mm-hmm. even if you're sitting, let's say at the top of zone two, like going back to our zone two of 180 Watts. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're holding that for like four or five hours, eventually those type one fibers start to fatigue and you start to recruit more type two fibers. And so you're going to start to produce burn more glycogen burn more carbohydrate, produce more lactate. And so the fatigue is mm-hmm. still going to happen, even though it's not an hour, it's going to mm-hmm. mimic a lot of what's happening mm-hmm. when you cross that threshold. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so I guess my point though, is that I think, you know, cause, cause if we, if we start to talk about, you know, people do 20 minute FTP, right. As their like threshold power, but I would really argue that that thre- that second threshold is really going to be dependent on whatever race you're doing. Because your ability to maintain 20 minutes versus an hour versus three hours versus six hours, like at the end of the day, performance is what we're, what we're ultimately trying to get to. Right. And it, and most likely, right. You're, you're not going to be, well, I don't know. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I think, I think though, like, I think people, you know, have this myopic view that like, you know, the, the FTP or critical power or whatever it is, is this like, uh, the, this magical, you know, threshold again. And I don't really think it is. I think, I think what we need to do is we need to take a step back and we need to say, okay, well, if I'm training for something and, you know, I, I, and I need to get better at maintaining my power output for three hours because it's a three hour uh, ride, then I need to do stuff that's going to push that ability to maintain that that three hours, you know, at, at higher wattage, if that, if that makes any sense. I, I don't know if I'm making sense here, but it, it, it does. And I think this kind of goes back to something you and I had talked about prior to the podcast. And it's like, so getting back to these thresholds or these transition areas, it's like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but really it's like we have three of them. So you've got VO2 max, which is kind of set four. Yep. let's say four. You've also got peak power, but let's say VO2 yes. max which is kind of setting the ceiling on your aerobic potential. Correct. Then you have FTP or critical power or whatever. That's kind of like a percentage that you can hold of that VO2 max. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's when we're like kind of maintaining homeostasis, like the highest sustainable power output without blowing up. Right. Then below that, we've got that first transition area, Mm -hmm. which is kind of our aerobic threshold. Right. And so it's like, when we're talking about this, it's like really thinking about where are you going to be operating? Like depending on the duration of your race, where in that 
those three areas are you going to be operating and how do you maximize your sustain, sustainable output in that area? Yep. Right. And it, it changes, right? Cause if you're, if you're closer, like, so for example, if you have, you said people rate, like they'll do the lead villain, it's like a 12 hour race, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so if, if 12 hours is your, is your, has to be your sustainable pace, you're going to be pretty close, you know, to that first, your aerobic threshold, if we want to call it that. And the, the things that influence fatigue are going to be a lot different than if we're racing, say for a 15 minute, like a 5k race or something like that. Like if we're running a 5k race. So, so it's, this is where the specificity of, of training comes in. Right. And maybe not in the off season, like we're at now, but as you get closer to that race, you better be doing a lot more race specific, you know, training in my opinion. No. And and the reason my eyes got big is like, I like, my kind of light bulb goes off and you like you had mentioned this myopic view. And I think this is a thing that I've seen happen over the years of coaching. It's like, we hear that FTP is the most important thing. So what does everybody do? Just hammer threshold intervals all day, Mm -hmm. every day, trying to make FTP go up. Right. Or now there's this polarized model. And so what does everybody do? Oh, it has to be this. And it's like, yeah, we have this huge range of human performance curve. And it's like really over the course of the year, we should be working on every part of that curve at some point, Mm -hmm. regardless if you're doing a 24 hour race or a 10 minute race, like you Mm -hmm. should be working on some of it at some point during the Mm -hmm. year. Right. But Mm -hmm. I I think as athletes and especially when a new article comes out or something, we like read it. It's like, Oh, this is a magic workout. This is all I'm doing for the next six months. You know? Yeah, that's, I mean, I get, you don't even know how many questions I get about the Norwegian method and double lactate, you know, the threshold days. Um, It's everyone's like, like, so, but that's a, that's a perfect case in point, right? Is like the, the Norwegian method is effective for those guys in Norway because of where they're at in their training. They need to accumulate a lot of work at 1500 to 5k pace. In order to actually do that, what they have found is that by monitoring their lactate levels and not going above a certain point, they're able to accumulate more speed, more training time at, you know, the, their 1500 pace or their 5k pace. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. So talk about specificity of training. They're maximizing their specificity of training and that's why it's helping them, you know, do so well. I I can also tell you that that's not the only thing that they're doing. Like right. they're, they're not just doing double lactate threshold days every single day because it's a magic workout. No, it's one workout in a big puzzle that is actually working towards, you know, make, making, you know, Jakob Ingebrigtsen as good as he is yeah. or the, the, uh, you know, Norwegian triathletes. Right. So, so I I've talked about this on my podcast as well as like, you know, you have to be very wary when you see just like, Oh, this is the workout that's going to change everything. Because again, you have to say, okay, well, how is that workout going to fit into my consistency, specificity, and progression? If if you're not ready, if it's like if it's a huge jump, right? You know, to do like, oh, well, I've never done a VO2 max workout in my life, then you probably shouldn't be doing like the same VO2 max workout as me. Right. Like cause I because I've been consistently doing VO2 max workouts now for the last, you know, three, four, five weeks. And I've done it, you know, for for 15, you know, 20 years of of my of my life at this point. So 
it's um, this is something that uh, Aaron Geyser says says quite a bit. He said it on the podcast is that it's it's context then content. So, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is you have to know the context in which the athlete is coming to you, or you as the athlete are coming to a coach. What's your physiology? What's your training age? What's your ability to recover from stress? Um, how stressful is your life? Do you have kids? Do you have dogs that you have to take care of? Do you have a family member that is dependent on you? Other things like that. And then from there, you can start to build out and make a a little bit more um, pointed decisions in, oh, does it make sense for me to now jump into these double lactate threshold days or you know, do a polarized training model or do a threat, do a pyramidal training model, because, you know, like it's, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than just, oh, if I do polarized training, I'm going to maximize my potential. No, like the, I, I talked to the researcher who, who primarily does a lot of this research. And he told me that the first paper that came out that really pushed, you know, polarized training, it was a four week study that looked at a developmental Norwegian uh, cross-country skiers and saw that most of them did a polarized training model for those four weeks. So that was, that's the first paper, right? So talk about context, you know, context is like, that's, that's four weeks of somebody's training. That's not a whole year. Right. And then he actually followed it up and he did a really cool paper where he looked at training distribution, um, over the course of an entire year. And what he found is that exactly what we're talking about you go from your general phase in the, in the off season where, you know, for example, if I was training for training for a three hour race, my general training phase is probably going to look like something where I'm doing a lot of volume. You're like, you know, really low intensity, like zone two or lower and then VO two max work because that VO two max work isn't going to really matter a whole lot in terms of specificity when I get to my actual race. So then what you do is you kind of funnel it down. You bring up, that intensity of your easier days and you bring down that intensity of your harder days until you kind of reach, you know, a sideways triangle where the point is, you know, that intersection of I'm going to race three hours and I'm going to crush it. Yeah. So, and I'll just, um, just a real quick note on that. And I like, because I do bag on sweet spot a lot or whatever. And it's like, I do think, (laughs) I think that's where it comes into play is that for a lot of people, I coach a lot of gravel cyclists and mountain bikers, but a lot of times that is their race pace. And so as mm-hmm. we get closer to their event, then it does make sense to be doing a lot of that work because it's very specific to that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not the only tool in our toolbox. Right. Exactly. So going back, and this is, this was kind of where I was talking about those uh, thresholds and, and, you know, our three different levels. This is something that I'm curious about. And you and I've talked about this before too, is that, if I were to, me personally, if I were to do a 20 minute test, it would probably put my FTP. So again, 20 minutes doing it, like taking 95% of that, it probably put my FTP at like 300 Watts. Okay. Anecdotally and like subjectively when I'm out riding, I'm like, there's no way it doesn't feel right. And so last year I'd got a lactate meter and did some lactate test. And I found that like, it's probably more like 275, which is what I also felt. Mm-hmm. And so my kind of like feeling on this, when, when we talk about the Norwegian method and stuff like that is like, I think it, like being more familiar with lactate and how it behaves now and stuff like that. I think a lot of people who set their FTP off of a uh, 20 minute test 
it's probably setting it too high. And I think mm-hmm. that's why sweet spot has been so attractive to so many people. It's probably closer to what threshold actually is when they're doing all that work. Mm-hmm. And it's like this sustainable, comfortably hard pace that you could mm-hmm. hold for a long time versus if I tried to do like threshold, you know, threshold work at 300 watt, like it's excruciating. It, it, yeah. Like I can't do a lot of it, you know? Right. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of uh, like critical power testing um, during my master's degree. And are you, are you familiar with that? I like, I know there's a lot of different methods. Like I, yeah. So essentially what it, what it requires you to do is it requires you to do like three to five time, all out time trials to exhaustion. And then you, you measure how much power you can maintain, you know, for a certain amount of time, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. Then you draw a curve. And it's a, it's a mathematical equation that basically says, okay, based on this curve, you know, where does it taper out? That's where your, uh, you know, critical power is your FTP, whatever you want to call it. So we were doing all these tests and, and I was just interested in it. Cause I was like, Oh, this is like, this seems like a sweet way of being able to determine, you know, sustainable and unsustainable. And, you know, then, then by definition, right. You, you were reading in the research and other people are like, Oh, well, FTP should be around an hour. So you should be able to maintain this for 30 to 60 minutes. So then what we would do is we would take people, we would do these critical power tests and then we'd take them, we'd put them on a bike and we'd say, okay, now you got to maintain, maintain this power for as long as possible. (laughs) And we were finding that people are only able to maintain it for like 14 to 25 minutes, depending on like how, how well trained they were and other things like that. So, so yes, I I think to, to answer your question, I, I do think that a lot of the times we're, we're overestimating, you know, where that, that actual balance point is. And that's where, you know, things like maximal lactate steady state have kind of come into the, come into the fold is because that's been shown to be even lower, you know, than critical power and seems to be a good indicator of, you know, your body's ability to reestablish some level of steady state and then, you know, continue to, to exercise, you know, from, from there. So, I, and we also have to remember, and I can't remember exactly where, like the definition of like, oh, do a 20 minute FTP and then take 95%. It was Andy Coggin, right? Is that- Andy Coggin and Hunter Allen. And I think Hunter Allen's the one that came up with that. And okay. where a lot of people, not to like hijack this, but I think a lot of people get it wrong because it originally, you did a five minute all out effort first and then did your 20 minute effort. Oh. And so people omit that first five minutes. And so yeah. I think that's part of it is you just, you don't have that extra fatigue that you would have had had you yeah. done essentially a VO2 max effort right before yeah. it. You that, know? Oh, that's super interesting. I didn't know that that was like the actual protocol to start with. I, Cause I, what I was going to say is like, you know, maybe they did it on professional athletes or did it something like that, where these athletes like right 95% decrement, you know, across, you know, 20 to 60 minutes may not be that much, like may not be that far fetched, you know, yeah. for a professional athlete, but for us mere mortals, like maybe it's 90%, right? But we don't know. That's that's the problem. Right. And that's exactly I think, you know, what what we can talk about is like with a with a 20 minute FTP, what you're finding out is you're finding out what your sustainable pace for 20 minutes is. Right. <laughs> that's exactly like yeah. like and that's that's what I that's what I, I I'm trying to remind everybody of is like what does a certain measurement tell us? Like lactate is only telling us how much lactate is within your blood at that given moment. It's not telling us 
how much carbohydrates being oxidized or, or broken down in your muscle. It's not being telling us how much is being taken up. It's just telling us what the net, what the answer is, how much lactate is making it into the blood. Same thing with uh, skeletal muscle oxygenation. How it's, it's the percentage. If we're looking at SMO2, it's a percentage of oxygen that is bound to your red blood cells or not. That's, that's all it's telling us. But of course, then if we start to add, you know, more uh, data points, then we can start to get a better idea of, oh, well, is the slope going down? Is the slope going up? Is it staying steady? Other things like that. So you, it's, it's again, it's, it's the same with heart rate, right? Heart rate is just telling us how hard our heart is beating. It's not telling us what our cardiac output is. It's not telling us what our stroke volume is. All of these things that potentially could be changing it. And I think, I think what we lose track of is, is everybody wants, you know, a, a single answer to something. Yeah. Comes down to FTP, right? Oh, if I just get my 20 minute FTP, I can multiply that by 95 or, you know, by 95%. And then from there I can determine what my, what my zones are based on. I think you said what 56 to 75% of FTP is supposed to be zone, zone two. two. Yeah. Where, if you don't mind me asking, where does that come from? I mean, just like, yeah, so that would be Coggin and Allen also. Okay. So, so yeah, so probably based on, you know, their research and their experience and yeah. other things like that, they came up with, oh yeah, most likely it's between 56 and 74% because some people are on that really high end. Other people are on that really low end, but that, that's a, that's almost 20% difference. Well, and, and like, so I want to bring this up. Like, this is something I say to athletes all the time. Like, especially when I start coaching them, it's like we, especially in exercise science, mm -hmm. it's like. I always tell them like I operate on a bell curve, right? Like based on things, it's like, I always start with the bell curve and most, this is going to work for most people, but there's also outliers. There's 30% mm -hmm. below there and 30% above there. And so right. like with that, right, it's like, it's those zones are based on a bell curve that the mm -hmm. majority of people fit into this, but there's always going to be outliers on the high and low end there. Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, and you know, with, uh, with a few minutes that I got to, I actually got to go, you know, at, at noon, but okay. with a few minutes, I'll, I'll use this kind of as a, a little bit of a plug, if you don't mind for physiological assessments and why, why you as an athlete should probably be doing that because, you know, if we're operating on a bell curve for, you know, like max heart rate or heart rate zones, FTP zones, other things like that, why not just test it? Yeah. Like if you could do a step test that is, you know, about the same as any, any workout that you would do. And then you determine what your zones are again, they're they're They can shift based on fatigue, based on hydration status, other things like that. But by getting an individual zoning plan, you're going to get estimates that are much, much closer to what you as an athlete are actually capable of versus, Oh, well, these researchers observed in, uh, you know, 15, uh, college age trained mice. men, <laughs> yeah, trained mice, right? You know, that, that threshold was occurring between 56% and 40 or 74% or, you know, whatever, if the, if the things are backwards, um, of, you know, second threshold, yeah. you know, so, so why, why not, you know, for, uh, you know, why not do that? And I understand the why not is, well, it's freaking expensive. Like that's the, that's the big thing, right? Is people go in and they're like, you know, if you, if you can even get a spot at a local university, it's, you know, anywhere between 350 and 500 bucks. It could even be more. Like I've seen some, te some testing protocols that are like 715 and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like no wonder people don't want to do this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
So this kind of brings it, brings it back. And, um, you know, I work for Moxie monitor, which is near and Fred spectroscopy company. And we've teamed up with full gas, which, uh, Dave does a little bit of consulting work for and a company called Trainalize that actually has, has made physiological models that allow us to take your Moxie response, your heart rate and your power variables, put those into our model and then give you estimates of things like VO2 max, maximal lactate steady state, VLA max, if you're a sprinter and you're really interested in that. Um, and then all your zones as well as carbohydrate oxidation. So it's, it's one of those things where it gives us the opportunity to actually estimate and get a better guy, get that compass, you know, from, you know, kind of being like, you know, 90, maybe 90 degrees difference to maybe dialing in a little bit, maybe 15 degrees difference. Yeah. So if you're interested in something like that, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I'm at critical O2 on Instagram. Um, and, uh, Dave might've shared, uh, my post the other day about, about continuous lactate monitors, but, uh, that that's something you guys should check out. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll link to that in the, um, in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the video. And so, yeah, real quick, you just said where we can find you on Instagram. Are you on, on Twitter or X that it's called nowadays, uh, or where I, else can I, we find you? Yeah, it's generally Instagram is the best place to reach me. Um, that's where I do most of my, you know, sharing of research and other, uh, you know, fun, entertaining physiology sort of stuff. Um, but I do have a podcast. It's called Critical Oxygen Podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Um, so you can find me on YouTube as well or on, you know, whatever podcast uh, platform that you're interested in. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. I, like I knew, we would, uh, we wouldn't get to all the bullet points, so maybe we'll, <laughs> I'll have you come back another time, but I certainly appreciate it. And yeah, yeah. I think it was fantastic. So thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dave. I really appreciate it. Take care.